Welcome to The Big Interview with Dan Rather, the podcast that delves deep into the heart of music through the words of the artists themselves. This is your backstage pass to intimate conversations with legends and icons from across the music world, as guided by none other than the legendary Dan Rather. Each episode will bring you exclusive in-depth interviews from rock and roll to country, from pop to alternative. We cover it all right here on The Big Interview with Dan Rather. So sit back, relax, and prepare to immerse yourself in the stories, the struggles, the triumphs, and the tunes that have shaped our musical landscape. Here's your host, Dan Rather. On this edition of The Big Interview, the blues is alive and well with Buddy Guy. Hey, good morning, buddy. Good morning, sir. How are you Glad this morning? You. Thank you very much for doing this. Thank really you. It's a pleasure. <laughs> well, have a seat. Let's talk. Thank you so much, sir. When Buddy Guy plays, you see why people used to call the blues the devil's music. He is fearsome. With his guitar, he summons the ferocity of Muddy Waters and the passion of B.B. King, both of whom were his friends and contemporaries, and both of whom are no longer with us. Buddy Guy is the last of the great blues men of the 20th century, yet he's as humble as his name suggests. Guy grew up on a sharecropper's farm in rural Louisiana. At 21, he left the Jim Crow South for the bustling blues clubs of 1950s Chicago. His raw talent stood out and landed him in the studios of the era's premier blues label, Chess Records. But it was his commanding stage presence that caught people's attention. That showmanship, plus his mastery of the blues, earned him a spot on the festival circuit alongside acts such as Janis Joplin and the Grateful Dead. Although Guy never achieved blockbuster sales, his style and verve thrilled his fans, some of whom became legends themselves, from Jimi Hendrix to Eric Clapton to Keith Richards. Buddy Guy has been cited as an inspiration by a number of history's greatest musicians. These days, Guy laments the decline of the blues. So he's taken it upon himself to make sure it's still heard. I met up with him in the shadow of the elevated train in Chicago at his Legends Blues Club, one of the few of its kind left in the city. Well, buddy, I really appreciate you doing this. You want one of the great blues men of all time. Thank you. Greatest living blues artist. And you have this club. Tell me where we are here. Well, we had 700 uh, South Wabash, uh, like in the South Loop of Chicago. And uh, I saw clubs and great musicians disappear. 
And something told me, don't let everything disappear. Just open a club. And when I first opened the club, I couldn't hardly afford it or nothing like that. But I took my chances on it. And it took uh, at least almost 30 years for me to say I'm breaking even with it. Because you don't make a lot of money in blues clubs no more, you know. Especially if you're a musician, you got a lot of friends. See, because if I'm sitting at the door, a lot of friends will come up and say, that's Buddy, I don't have to pay to come in. <laughs> well, running a business is no fun. Especially when you're not there and, you, and you're selling whiskey, because sometimes you'll have some friends who tend in your bar will make sure their friends feel good when they leave without paying. <laughs> Buddy, what is there about the blues? Uh, uh, Dan, for me, the blues is and the lyrics is about everyday life. Even if it doesn't happen to you, you know somebody else that it happened. And it's not all sad. Sometimes you hear, say, B.B. King made a record, but I got a sweet little angel. I love the way she spreads her wing. That don't sound sad to me. So, and then you got a, the late Eddie Boyd made one. I sung a, a lyric out of last night. I worked five long years in a steel bee, and she had a nerve to put me out. Now, that's kind of sad, because if you're trying to keep a family together and working, right. and she kicked you out, that could be sad. But blues has got good lyrics, and it's got the other lyrics, too, where you is unhappy, and then there's other lyrics where you're happy with it. When I talked to Carlos Santana, by who was very complimentary about you, to say this. Thank you. Yeah, he's a good friend. But he was talking about your playing the blues. And he said, you're able to strike lightning with the guitar. He is, too. You know, he, as a matter of fact, he struck more lightning than I do because he sold more records than I did. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, all of those guys, you know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's something special for all of us. You know, sometimes I look and say, well, I can play, but just listen at Eric Clapton, Santana, and uh, Joe Bonamassa, and all these young people coming up, which I just discovered a little youngster called Quinn Sullivan. And you wouldn't believe I was on stage up in Massachusetts, and his dad had him by the hand. I got a picture upstairs of him now, I will show you. He was seven years old. And normally when a seven-year-old girl or a little boy come in, I said, can you play? Yeah, and I'm looking for him to hit three notes. And I'm going right. to say, okay. <laughs> this kid come up to the band and started playing Santana, Clapton, me, B.B. King, and everything. I'm like, what? At seven? <laughs> you, don't, you don't teach that in school. That's just the natural. Well, there was back in the day, and you were here back in the day. Let me take you back to the, to the prime era of Chicago blues. Tell me about it. Uh, Dan, I came here September 25th, 1957. That's when they went a rolling in. Mm -hmm. And the migrating birds was going to Florida, Louisiana, and Texas, and I was coming this way. So the birds had more sense than I had because they was <laughs> getting out of the cold weather when I was coming here. But we had the great Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, uh, Jimmy Reed, and all of those guys here. And they tell me, your blood thickens according to the weather where you at. And I was, I guess mine was thin. And I said to myself, 
what do you want to come here for this and you never experienced a, 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 a zero in Louisiana. We never had that. And I got to meet Muddy Waters, Howlin' Wolf, the late junior, with well, all of them passed and gone, and I'm still here. But when in the heyday, about how many clubs were there maybe? I can't even count them. Dozens? Because, oh, no, it's more than dozens. Uh, some of them was capacity 35. It wasn't a, nothing this big, you know, but uh, it wasn't a cover charge. And, and when I met Muddy Waters, it was it, the building is still there on 47th Street. It's called Club 47. The beer, bottle of beer was 25 cents. And when Muddy Waters played, it was 35 cents. And the dime went to Muddy because it, it wasn't no cover charge. It put an uh, off-duty police in there. When you went in, they made sure you buy a beer or a shot of whiskey or whatever. And that's how he got paid. And I'm looking like that. So, But I didn't never think I was good enough to play. I just wanted to watch them play. I was looking for a day job. And they found out I could play a few licks that I had learned from them. And that's how I got introduced to him and got a chance to make albums with him and things like that. And I guess that brought me to today talking to you. <laughs> From very humble beginnings to blues master, we'll be back with more of Dan Rather's big interview with Buddy Guy. Tough beginnings make for great blues, and there was none tougher than Buddy Guy's. We're back with Dan Rather's big interview. Buddy Guy's parents were poor. Like most people who lived on a sharecropper's farm, they had few possessions, no electricity, and limited access to musical instruments. So when Buddy Guy discovered he wanted to be a musician, he had to get creative. Well, let's go back to the very beginning. You're in rural Louisiana. What was life like? Dan, life was not just me. Life was on that plantation where I was born. And by the way, they just, I was down there last week, they found the name of Highway after me. That must be a good. Yeah, because I told them, let me see it. Don't wait till I'm gone and name it. And they all had to laugh because <laughs> they had to stay there to, to vote on it through the governor and they voted um, 97 to zero to give it to me. But it was eat to live and live to eat. My mother and father didn't know what a bank was. They didn't ever had to close the door to the house with nobody going in. They had their three dollars or four dollars if they had left, they could put it in a pillowcase and with nobody going and take it. If they did, their neighbors say, John, we're in your house. <laughs> and I wish it were like that today, because you can't hardly stay in your house today with the door locked. When did you first get to music? What's the what's the first musical thing you can remember? A rubber band at my ear like this on the farm. All I want to do is hear some noise. And you may try this when you get home. Now you can take an ordinary hair comb and put a piece of paper between the comb like this and, and talk and you and you can hear noise of the music. But and my second was there wasn't no such thing as electricity. So my mom and dad had a wood stove and you would put a screen, one uh, screen door, so you could leave the door uh, every night, so you get some kind of little fresh air. Right. 
And all of a sudden, I would strip all that scream out there trying to make a guitar string. And my mom would look and say, there's mosquitoes in this house. And I know that boy put him a screen one up there last night. And look at it. It was stripped out because the string well, would break so much. You couldn't find it, but I could hear right. what I was listening to, just some noise. First of all, you start with the rubber band. Yes. Then you go to the... Um, a flit cane, a, a, a lighter fluid cane. Right. And and take two nails and put a little tack in it and put a little stick in it and in it like that. Right. And then I could do this uh, like a little banjo or something about that long, as long as I could hear something. Is it something you were born with or something you saw somebody else do? It wasn't about I did to see they had one guy would play guitar and they would go get him on Christmas Eve and Christmas Day and you didn't see him no more until next Christmas. And when did you get your first instrument, your true instrument? That guy they go get every Christmas. Uh, your house had a case of beer and a jug of wine. They would start five o'clock on Christmas on or, or Christmas Eve night or Christmas morning. And when that drank that house, they would go to the next person's house to drink it out. And by the time he got drunk, he laid the guitar on the wall and I would go get it. And everybody would sleep. The rest of the kids were running and playing. <laughs> and I said, I just got to get this guitar. Well, and then what happened? So you finally, you finally get to a, a, a proper guitar. But that didn't only had a couple of strings on it. But my dad bought that from, from him for $2. And there's no way I could buy strings because uh, there was no place to buy a string. But I did find out later on if you could get a ride or go somewhere they had, you could go to a little place called Sensible, Louisiana, and they did have, you could buy a string. But my first six-string guitar stranger, after I went into Baton Rouge trying to go to high school, and I would sit on my sister's porch every evening after I did my little homework for school, and I'd bang these three or four strings, and I'd learn how to splash them if you break them because I couldn't buy another one. And a stranger walked by and said, hey, man, I bet if you had a real guitar, you would learn how to play. I said, I guess I would. And he said, what do you do tomorrow, Friday evening? I said, I sit here every evening. He said, I'll be by. And he come by and said, you ready? I said, what? He said, I'm going to buy you a guitar. And he took me downtown and bought the guitar. And there's about 60 miles out there where my dad lives. So my sister came in and said, a quarter bill, country boy, and a guitar. Let's go out to my daddy's house. And the guy said, oh, yeah, I got an old raggedy car. We can drive out there. And we drove out there. And as soon as he walked in the door, my dad said, is your name Mitchell? Yeah. They had grew up together. Wonderful story. Wonderful yeah. story. Yeah. Now, the polka dots, and you're known for your polka dots, on the guitars, on your shirts, on everything. What's that about? I lied to my mom when I left there. I'm the only kid was leaving. There's five of us. And I told her, I say, I'm going to Chicago. I was working at LSU in Baton Rouge. And my job's still open. It, 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 it's, uh, a couple of years ago, they called me back down. I didn't quit. I gave them a notice, and they said, you can always come back. So I wanted to make my mom feel good. I say, I'm going to go to Chicago and I'm going to make a lot of more money and I'm going to buy a polka dot Cadillac. And I knew I was nine. <laughs> and she smiled. And when she passed away, I kept saying to myself, you know, 
I didn't give a chance to get a chance to go back and tell her I'd lied to her about them polka dots. And something told me, said, maybe you should do something and remember that you lied to her. And I went to defend the guitar company and I wanted a polka dot guitar and it took them 20 years. And a guy came and said, I can put them polka dots on and they would stay and he did. Well, you obviously were very close to your mother. We all was. All the Southern people were like that. Do you know, if you had a went there before I left there 60 some years ago, you walked down the street in Louisiana and somebody said, good morning. If you didn't say good morning back, they would put, get up and put their hands on the hip. I said good morning. <laughs> <laughs> and you couldn't deny that. And some of them are still like that. It's still around. I have a great smile. Uh, Is that your mother's smile? Uh... Dan, I guess so. You know, I, I, people tell me that all the time. I wish the whole world would just start smiling a little more and stop frowning. Because I tell people from the stage every time I play, you know, a smile looks much better than a frown. All the time. Buddy, let's talk again about music. Tell me about Boogie Chillin'. First thing I ever learned how to play by myself. We were living right at the levee on the Mississippi yeah. River. So in order for my sister and them not to make my mother run out the house, run me out the house, I'd had to go on the levee because it just sound like a bunch of bees when you're learning <laughs> how to play on acoustic guitar when I finally got one. And I was on the levee, and John Lee Hooker had just come out with that Boogie Chillin', which I think was one of his biggest records. And I don't know what happened, but I was laying out there on the grass on the levee and my fingers got locked, and I heard me sounding like I had found that book of children. And I looked at my fingers and I said, don't move, don't move, I'm gonna get up and I'm going, and I'm gonna walk, and I'm gonna walk, and I walked to everybody I knew who could find, and in the country, that was a long ways. <laughs> and I said, look what I found, look what I found. That's the first thing I had learned how to play. Do you still play it? Yes, if, I, if somebody asks me, yeah, I still play it. The blues has been around for a long, long time. A long time. But it really di didn't become super popular in the United States until the British young the groups British found it. Found it. And then they started coming to this country playing the music, people hearing the records, and suddenly the blues has a revival in the 50s and the 60s. Yes, yeah. Uh, they surprised me because I went there in February 1965, and uh, Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck, Jimmy Page told me, they slept in a van to see me play because they didn't know a Strat could play blues. And uh, thanks to Rolling Stone magazine, I may still have a copy of that. He, they put, uh, interviewed me and Beck, and they called us the Strat Cats. <laughs> and uh, when they start playing it, they give a big lift to B.B., Ike, and Tina Turner, and everybody because when the Rolling Stone got so big, they came here and it was introducing some of these people to audience hadn't never thought of them. Yeah. When they started opening the shows, putting on Billy Preston and people like that, and they said, wow, you know, because I think Billy did a lot of recording with the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. What about Mustang Sally? Well, you know, that's a Wilson Pickett thing. And I went to, I did that album in London. Mm -hmm. And I had Jeff Beck to come in, and he made my day with that, man, you know, because I you know, you, I couldn't do it like Wilson, you know, he, he set the soul on fire with that, but they wanted me to do that 
hoping because the airplay was fading away when I made that record. That was one of my biggest records, damn right I got the blues. And I was hoping that kind of music would make them play one of my records every once in a while where some of these young people could hear it and hope keep the blues alive. What is there about your music that makes it unique? It is unique. Nobody has a sound exactly like your sound. Dan, I think everybody had something like that. I don't know. I, I wish I could pinpoint and answer you that. Because when I heard B.B. King play, first thing I, I heard him play was made big was called 3 o'clock in the morning. Then I heard Guitar Slim with Ray Charles, before Ray Charles got famous, backing him up with things I used to do. And I heard so many great guitar players, and all of them stands out like a so thumb. Also, you know, I, some things I can't answer. I just watch the audience and say, uh, if this is what they want, this is what I'll try to give them. You play the guitar in all kinds of strange ways. I mean, I don't know anybody else can play a guitar with his teeth. You also play one-handed behind your back? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, you know, that come accidentally. I didn't practice that. I tell kids now, I got a lot of young kids come see me now to play. They don't teach that in school. You know, that's happiness of my playing. I, I, I saw, the first time I saw a Stratocaster was one of the great guitar players named Guitar Slim. He made a famous record called Things I Used to Do in the Late 40s or Early 50s. And he didn't play with his teeth uh, behind his back or nothing, but he was just wild. And he, I looked at the Strat and he didn't have a strap. He had a fish line while well, he done broke the strap and it was almost down to his knees while I was playing. I had watched B.B. King and I saw him. So to say, ladies and gentlemen, the guitar slam, and I'm at the stage about 14 years old waiting for him and all I did was hear the guitar. <laughs> and everybody looked around, he was coming in the door <laughs> with a red suit on, on a guy's shoulder like a little baby. You walk, carry on yourself with your little feet around your neck. And they had this big heavy guy had him on the neck. And he come in the door playing this guitar. I say, I want to act like guitar slim, but I want to play like B.B. King. And you pretty much did that. Ah, uh, no, I don't know. I can't take that. I can't. You, you ain't going to never replace B.B. King and guitar slim. I just, when you, when you trying to play like, those famous people is like trying to be like Willie Mays or Mickey Mantle. You can catch the ball, but you never got to, you're not going to be like Mickey Mantle. You're not going to be Mickey Mantle. I told Muddy Waters and B.B. King, I said, y'all shoes will never be fulfilled. I can hit a few notes, but B.B. King didn't have special effects like Jimi Hendrix and all the new guitar players got. He had a vibrator in his left hand. I thought it was something in the amplifier, but I got to know him, it was just him. And I couldn't do it like them, but I found out, I said, hey man, you can, 
you can play your guitar like this sometime. And I, and I, I learned that. You know, and I found out, I said, well, I, if I can feel it, I can put it behind my back and play it. And I did. And then I, one day, I didn't do this at home. I just had a shot of Coney. I can decide to try it on the stage. Because <laughs> I think if I, I practiced it, I would, I would have missed it. When we come back, racism and talent collide. And Buddy Guy goes to Washington, D.C. When Dan Rather's big interview continues. From racist taunts to the halls of the White House, Buddy Guy has been through it all. Let's get back to Dan Rather's big interview. Buddy, you're a musician, a great musician, one of the greatest of all time. I don't want to talk about politics per se, but it strikes me in talking to you. What a distance you've come, and what a distance you've seen our country come, for better and for worse. Right. But in terms of race relations, I mean, you grew up at a time when Jim Crow was really deep. Yeah. You were born in the 1930s, yeah. all through the late 30s, through the 40s. Yes, I come up in the South with the white and black toilets, restaurants, bars. But guess what? My mom, they would come get my mom to cook for them every day, and she could go in the house and use their bathroom and do all the cooking and everything. And when she finished and go into the restaurant or the bar, that she couldn't go in the same bar with them. Tell me the story of the time you moved to Chicago and you have a house, and somebody pelted the house with eggs. Tell me that story. It was, it was a suburb here called Country Club Hills. And I think I was the first black person moving that area. And I came home and I had a, a, a kind of light brown onions at the house. And as soon as I saw the, the yellow of the egg on the house while they throw the eggs out there, I didn't get angry. You know, I didn't get angry, but guess what? I was playing the blues festival. And the Suntime paper had me on the front page. And the next day, I get up, and there's people out there washing the eggs off my house. Oh, we didn't know who that was. <laughs> and how, you know, I don't like special treatment just because I don't know how to play a guitar. You know, I remember once, Dan, it was, I think, almost 20 degrees below zero, and I was trying to fill my car up, and a guy recognized me and said, wait a minute, what you doing? I said, I'm out of gas. See, you ain't got no business filling your car. I said, but it's going to be worse if I run out of gas when it's below zero. I go to the grocery store. People look at me. What are you doing in here? I said, man, I got to eat just like you. <laughs> so they look at you sometimes and think you're supernatural. You don't have to eat, drink water, go to the store, put gas and stuff in your car like that. Yeah. So, uh, but I don't let that. You know, the late John Lee Hooker used to tell me, did nothing go to my head when I found out I could play well enough for somebody to come listen to me? I don't let that go to my head. I'm just another person that will come in here and sit at the bar and talk to people. I don't isolate myself. You know, the only time I isolated myself when 
when they find my house and don't let me sleep and they'll come up in the house and start making circles, asking for autographs when I'm trying to get that <laughs> afternoon nap. Then I have to get a little, I got a, 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 a Polish guy as my housekeeper and he'll keep him away every once in a while and then when he don't sleep. You've seen so much, experienced so much and still at it. The question occurs to me, buddy, that you, you come from rural Louisiana by way into Baton Rouge, into Chicago, traveled the world, become a legend, an icon. What have you learned? That if you play well enough, you can play in the White House. <laughs> I made it there. You made it there and you had that uh, meeting with President Obama. Yes. Plus I went there with President Bush too. I didn't play with him, but, but I, I received a, a medal from him. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So what'd you say you've learned that if you can play well, you can play anywhere? I don't know about, I, I can play anywhere if I'm invited anywhere. Well, I was born in a country we had what you call outhouse. And one of my friends, an ex-policeman said, buddy, you should say this and let the president know when you pick your guitar in the White House. So I should have said, it's a long ways from the outhouse to the White House. <laughs> I said, no, I can't, I can't say that, man, you know. Yeah, yeah, because I went in there a couple of times and, uh, with Obama, you know, we had, we were, we were playing there with B.B. King and uh, one of the staffs at the White House said, you know, President Obama from Chicago, and he probably know how to sing Sweet Home Chicago. <laughs> Say so if you tell, if you say it, and, and I'm like, I know you remember when Aretha Kitt made that comment and you right. never heard much of her no more because they just boom. So I said, if I call this president up here and he don't, he don't respond, I'm going to go under this table and I'm not coming out. <laughs> but he did come up and sang the voice of uh, Sweet Home Chicago. You have started something, you got to keep it up now. come back to the question, what have you learned about life? Uh, life is too short to worry. <laughs> <laughs> you better enjoy it while you're here because I looked around and went to sleep yesterday and I'm almost by myself now from that area with uh, the Mudders, the Wolves, the Walters, the BB. I could go on until next week naming people that I learned a lot from listening to, and then not, not here anymore. Matter of fact, me and BB, BB came in one, one of my records, and uh, it's a kind of gospel thing, thank the Lord. Mm -hmm. And uh, at the end, he said, buddy, you're going to be my buddy, even when I'm pushing up daisies. So when I went to his funeral, I forgot to tell him, when they put you in the vault, you can't push up daisies. <laughs> 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 well, you've been married twice, divorced twice. Yes. What did you learn from that? Uh, when you're a musician, you're never home, highly. 
And the average wife you marry, if she don't understand that before you marry, after you marry, she realized that I guess I'm not there enough. But let me make the long story short. When I wasn't making any money playing the guitar, they was like, you got to do something. Because uh, <laughs> we need this and we need that. Then I got lucky and made a pretty good record, started making. I wasn't really at home. I'm always here by myself. I said, but when I was there, you wasn't satisfied. Now I'm away, you're not satisfied. <laughs> so, you know, let's get to going. <laughs> As a good friend of mine passed away some time ago, I think I might do that album ago. He called it, I'm going to cut you loose. You know, the lyrics in there, he said, I work, work, work. What have I got to show? The only thing you give me is a hard way to go. And I'm going to throw up both of my hands and holler, what's the use? <laughs> Well, I'm told you still get along pretty well with both your former wives. Better now than it was when I was married. <laughs> yeah, because I bought them both cars, and uh, about, about two years or three years ago, I bought them both cars, and they laugh, and they come up and tell me now they was wrong. Yeah. yeah. What do you do to have fun, buddy? I mean, besides playing, obviously, you love to play. Yeah, you know, I, I love to cook, and I like to... Uh, you know, uh, I be with kids. I like to uh, uh, talk to people and hope everybody's not angry at something they shouldn't be angry at. Because I, I made, I made a, they got some videos on me while they was taping me at my house, and uh, it was about the bad and the good things. And uh, they made me go out in the yard and. I would start singing a song, and they would sing this, you got a sad song? I said, I don't think I got a sad one. I said, everything I sing, I just want to make somebody happy with it, you know? And you, and that doesn't work all the time, you know? Even when I go play, you know, I try to make everybody there happy, and I know that's impossible. But I hope to win the next one, say, well, he didn't make me happy, but I could tell he gave me every damn thing he had. And that's what I do every time I go play. Well, when I ask you what you like to do besides play music, you said, well, you do like to cook. Oh, yeah, I'm from Louisiana. You know, we, well, we was raised, you had to cook. There wasn't no such a thing as no store where I could run and get a loaf of bread. If I didn't know how to make the cornbread or the biscuits, you miss, you miss your bread. Now, you're not here to tell me you can make cornbread and biscuits from scratch. That's the only way to do it. But now they got the, 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 the meal and stuff in the box. Now all you have to do that is add your egg and your milk to it now, you know. But my mom and them, we used to have to get the bowels of flour like this, and we used to have to take the corn that we grew and go to the ground and come back with a bowl full of a meal like this. And my mom and them could make it, oh, man, I, I can't do it like they could. They could on a wood stove. You know, there wasn't no ton on your gas on. We'd have to make that fire in that wood stove, and sometimes that little stove would be red hot. Man, she could bring that cornbread out there, and you didn't need no meat with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, a friend of mine recently said something kind of caught my ear. Just share it with you. He said, when I was young, if they'd had biscuits in the can, I'd never gotten married. <laughs> uh, that's a good one because 
My mommy could take her knuckles, Dan, and man, she could take that thing and she could break that piece of dough off and do that to them, and it looked like the bitch would come out the can. <laughs> now, I can't do that. I, I, I never could do that because she didn't do that. Because, you know, my mom and my grandmom and them, all of them on the plantation and everything, they had to get up and go cook for the plantation owner. And then they would come home and cook for us because we had the wood stove. We didn't have no gas and stuff like that. And those biscuits coming out that what they could make with them knuckles like that, they twisted. They wasn't no cut the biscuit like this. They'd pull a little piece of dope and and do that, and that thing looked like a biscuit come out the can, man. And you talking about something good, man. You know, I wish I could do that. I can't do it like like that. You still cook your, your gumbo, but you don't do it on a wood stove. I, I don't only cook gumbo. I cook everything. My family looks at me now, man. If I don't if I don't cook when I'm getting home, they be looking at me under it. Is you a cook today? Not only my family, I got friends, uh, you know, I own the, the, the club in Chicago. Some people, and they'll come in there and say, ooh, is you going, is you cooking? Is you cooking today? I'll be over if you cooking. I'll say, okay, man. Because so, sometimes I just jump in the kitchen and cook for several people, and they'll come over, and i say, you're on your own, now I'm going to bed. Wish John Lee Hooker do that, too, you know. <laughs> Legends isn't just a nightclub, it's a sanctuary for the blues. Buddy Guy is dedicated to preserving the rich legacy of American blues music. He's collected many items from his legendary friends to display throughout the bar. And he's proven to be relentless when it comes to acquiring memorabilia. <laughs> And you got Jimmy Vaughn's guitar. Jimmy Vaughn, yeah. Clapton, Stevie Ray, Jeff Beck, Santana, Derek Trucks, and of course, John Lee. And then the king of them all, B.B. Well, I see you got a Keith Richards guitar up here. But you know how long it took him to give me that guitar? I figured Keith Richards would give you a guitar right away. No, don't figure like that. <laughs> I've been asking for that guitar over 50 years, and every time I would go and ask him, I said, man, what my guitar that go on my wall? My manager didn't talk to you? I said, you know your manager. And the manager standing over there wanking his eye. He didn't get it. And I finally went to the concert. I said, I'm not going to ask you for a guitar no more. I'm just going to take this one off the stage. <laughs> and finally I got it, and I found he came here and signed it. Well, that's the story of Keith Richards, and it takes 50 years to get his guitar. Yeah. Now, what do we got over here? Well, let's talk about the album a bit. I like the picture. Thank you. It looks like the old home place could use a paint job. Well, it's falling down, you know, because, you know, not too far from there is what they call a gin, while we used to have to take the cotton to be yeah. gin out. And I told the guy, I said, man, don't let that go because I would go down and pay for it before I let it go. I wanted to stay there's history. Yeah. You open it up. See, oh, there's more pictures new. inside. Oh, yeah, somebody just told me, said they like uh, the coat. And oh, that, very dapper with the bowler hat. Yeah, and, and guess where the coat came from? All right, I can't guess. Santana. Himself. Carlos Santana took that coat off his back and told me, I want you to have this. <laughs> well, let's talk about that album a bit. Tell me what the name of the album is, what your hopes for it are. The name of the album is The Blues is Live and well, but you know they don't let me, somebody had to come tell me what the cover of the album looked like now, because I don't make, 
decisions on the album. I'll be waiting for the fans to come back to me and say, okay, but I've been interviewed uh, 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 last week, blah, blah, blah. Well, I forget how many interviews I got. Everybody tell me it's okay. But you still, it's like if I tell you the food in Louisiana is good, you ain't going to know it until you go taste it. <laughs> so yeah, I got to wait till the album come out and see what uh, what happened with it. If it's a good one, then the 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 public who purchased in the album will let you know if it's a good one or not. And who plays on the album? Uh, we got uh, Mick Jagger coming in there. We got uh, uh, Keith Richard on 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 a couple of cuts there, and then the regular studio musicians that we use now. Because I've been doing my last five or six albums down in Nashville. But I'm gonna ask you to imagine with me now. We've had a wonderful morning of it. You've been terrific, generous you. with your time and with your stories. But I want to imagine the time, your time has come. You're going to cross the river, and we're going to have a memorial service for you. What tune do you want us to play? The thrill is gone. Ah, uh, that's a B.B. King song. Went pretty big. It's called The Thrill Is Gone. But I don't know if I'm the thrill he is. But I don't know. Just play a good blues song. And because uh, why, why if I went, I wasn't the best in town, but I was the best till the best come around. Not a bad thing. All right. <laughs> I wasn't the best in town, but I was the best until the best came around. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Buddy, what question have I not asked you that I should have asked you? Uh, I don't know, Dan. You can ask me anything. I, I I do my best to try to give you the best answer that I can, you know, because uh, some of the things I went through, uh, Africa, you know, we 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 we've been I've been to Africa several times, and I've seen some things I never dreamed of, and uh, of course, you know, I've been to Europe, Australia, and all those different places like that, and that's an experience that coming up on a farm with no complete high school education and music act took me a long ways. Boy, I'll say. Yeah, and I ought to get to a lot. I thank you. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much. Before. Thank you. And that's it for this edition of The Big Interview. We're always eager to hear what you have to say, so please follow us on Facebook and Twitter or send your comments to viewer at access.tv. another great episode of The Big Interview with Dan Rather. We hope you've enjoyed this journey into the life and music of our special guest as much as we have. Now remember, if you love what you're hearing, be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform. We'd also appreciate it if you would leave us a review and maybe even share the show with a fellow music lover. And to stay up to date with all things related to the show, you can follow us on social media where we share behind the scenes tidbits, previews, and so much more. Until next time, keep the music playing.